I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is where I want to direct your attention. You'll find the book of Ecclesiastes after Proverbs in the Bible. So there's the big book of Psalms and then the book of Proverbs and then the shorter book of Ecclesiastes. If you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah or the New Testament, turn left. And if you're in Psalms, turn right. You'll find Ecclesiastes 1. While you're turning there, let me just give a thanks to the uh, sponsor of today's sermon, Thomas's English Muffins, providing good breakfasts for everyone. You'll have to listen to last week's tape if that didn't make it. Uh, the other thing I want to uh, do is reiterate the invitation to uh, the baptism service tonight. It starts at 6 o'clock. It's at the Straub House. Um, it's a beautiful day for it. Uh, we'll sit outside and uh, sing and listen to some testimonies. Uh, Brianna Brubaker and Abby Straub and Grant Friesen are going to be baptized tonight. Uh, after we'll listen to their testimonies, we'll gather around uh, Fred's pool and uh, we'll uh, watch the baptism. Uh, it'll be really good. Um, you will enjoy that, so please plan to come. Remember, remember to bring a lawn chair uh, so you have a place to sit uh, tonight. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, verses 1 through 11 uh, this morning. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I know it's only September, but it will not be very long before you will have the opportunity to, 24 hours a day for four weeks at least, watch Frank Capra's classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I don't know how many times you've seen it. I have a confession to make. I have seen several bits and pieces here and there, but I have not yet to watch the entire thing from beginning to end. But if you live in the United States, you know what that movie is about. It's about George Bailey, and George Bailey lives in Bedford Falls. And George Bailey's life is about to fall apart, uh, and because of his failures, he's convinced that everyone in, that he knows and the world itself would be better without him. So just before he takes his life, his guardian angel, Clarence, intervenes and shows him what life would be like without him. Now, there's a scene in the flashbacks of this movie where uh, we see George, young George, as a teenager, having a conversation with his father, and they're talking about what George is going to do when he grows up. The last thing that George wants to do is work in the family business. 
The last thing that George wants to do is live in an old house in Bedford Falls and marry a local girl and have a lifetime of love. The last thing young George Bailey wants is to have the same friends and the same enemies and live in the same place and have the same job for his entire life. And he says to his dad, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. I want to do something big, something important. Now, listen to how Zach Eswine evaluates George Bailey's uh, beliefs. This is what Zach Eswine said. This story, It's a Wonderful Life, has endured for so many years because at least two assumptions live within George's thoughts that we too recognize within our own. One, George assumes that if importance is to be gained in this life, he has to travel to a patch of earth somewhere other than where he pleasantly resides presently resides in order to find it. In other words, if it's going to be important, it can't happen here. I've got to go somewhere else. Two, he also believes, Eswine says, he believes that once he finds it, that important thing and that important place on earth, once he finds that, he will become a satisfied and happy man, happy man content, experienced, honored, and fulfilled, no longer restless within himself or the world, If these two ideas in George's head are balloons, then Ecclesiastes 1 is a needle meant to pop them. It's a pretty good image for this book of Ecclesiastes. It's a sharp book. Um, Reading it sometimes it feels like it pops all the balloons in the party in your head. And yet, even in its sharpness, this book is helpful. See, the author of Ecclesiastes, he calls himself the teacher. It may be Solomon. Uh, according to tradition, it is. Maybe him. He wants you to know that what it means to live a satisfying life. He wants you to live a life with meaning and, in pur- and purpose. But in order to do that, you have to learn to do at least two things. One, you have to learn to deal with the repetitive, monotonous nature of life in this world. We human beings have turned this world upside down. We've broken the world that God made. And because we live in this broken world, there's a lot of repetitiveness. There's a lot of monotony in life. You've got to learn how to deal with that. Second thing that the author of Ecclesiastes wants, you, Ecclesiastes wants us to learn, you have to eliminate all of the twisted ways that we try to put a good life together. So the Humpty Dumpty of life that God made has fallen off the wall and we for a long time have been trying to put it back together again ourselves. And the author of Ecclesiastes wants to come along and say, it's not going to work. Don't try to put a life together that way by yourself. In that sense, the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes offers a warning very much like Jesus did at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he used this analogy. He said, if you take my words and you hear them and obey them, it's like building your house on a rock. And when a terrible storm comes because you've built your house on a rock, the house will stand up. Don't, if you ignore what I'm saying, Jesus said, it's like building your house on sand. And when a storm comes, the house will go splat. Don't build on the sand teacher would would say that. That's right. Now, we just read through the introduction of the book, and my task today is I want to walk through the text with you. I want to explain it. I want to point out some of the ways that this would apply. This is not a hard passage to walk through. The structure is really simple. There's the theme that happens in verses 2 and 3. 
And then he gives two reasons why his theme is right, two arguments for it. So the theme is a warning, and then there's two arguments. Let's start with the theme as we walk through this. All right. First of all, the teacher wants you to know this. He wants you to know that life under the sun is a vapor. Life under the sun is a vapor. It's a mist. It's a mere breath. Verse 2, it's not just the theme of this chapter, but it's actually the theme of the whole book. Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes 1 and flip over with me to Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. So we're in chapter 1. We're going to go back to chapter 12, verse 8. And look what chapter 12, verse 8 says. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. It's an exact copy of verse 2. So he opens in Ecclesiastes 1-2 by saying this, and then he closes the book in Ecclesiastes 12-8 by saying the same thing. These are bookends in the book of Ecclesiastes to tell us this is his theme. Uh, and it's, it's a little disheartening. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's utterly meaningless. It's a little disheartening. It's a little bit unclear, actually. So it's unclear in part because what the teacher wrote here is difficult to translate. Um, not the literal words. We could translate the literal words up quite easily. It's, it's the word vapor. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But it's the meaning. There's a, there's a puzzle behind this word that is, often trans, that is translated in the NIV here as meaningless. I'm not sure how best to translate this word, as a matter of fact. It's... Uh, there's probably not one good English word that tries to convey everything that's implied by the Hebrew. The, the word appears 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's really important. And our English versions differ in how it should be translated. The Hebrew word is the word hevel, H-E-B-E-L, if I were to write out in English letters. And it literally means vapor, literally means breath. Actually, we could be more specific. A hevel is what happens when you breathe out. That's Hebel. There is another Hebrew word for breathing. It's the word ruach. It's translated in the Bible as wind or breath or spirit. Ruach is uh, uh, your life breath. You are alive because you breathe. You are ruach. But the Hebel is, is the waste product of the ruach. It's, it's the backside of breathing. It's the backside of life. It's, it's invisible except in cold weather. When you were five and it was really cold in the morning, you'd breathe out. You and your friends in the school playground could pretend you were smoking because you could see it come out. Your hebel. We did that in New York. Maybe you didn't in godly Pennsylvania. I'm not sure. The teacher here is using this metaphor, this comparison um, life is a vapor. That is, life is like a vapor. There are things that life and vapor have in common. Now, what are they? And the NIV translators chose to emphasize the meaninglessness of that exhalation. When you breathe out, it's not really worth anything. It's, it, no one's bottling it up. In the mornings, it's offensive. It comes out, it's just bad. It's, it's got no, no usefulness. It's meaningless. I'm not sure that's exactly everything that the author of Ecclesiastes has in mind, though. Uh, take, for example, and I'll, I'll read this to you, Ecclesiastes 
Ecclesiastes 11.10 says, So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Meaningless. That's the word hebel. He doesn't mean that youth and vigor are meaningless. He means in this passage that they're short. They're over very fast. They're brief. The Bible also uses this word hebel to talk about things that are brief and insubstantial, fragile things, empty things. Here's some examples from other parts of the Bible where we see the word hebel used. So Psalm 62, verse 9. Actually, I'm going to read Psalm 62, 6. The psalmist in Psalm 62, 6 is writing about God. He's a solid rock. Truly, God is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. So God is a rock. In contrast to that, verse 9, Surely the lowborn are but a breath. There it is, hebel. The highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Human beings, in comparison to the trustworthiness of God, are insubstantial, not reliable, not trustworthy. They're just a, just a hebel. Or Proverbs 21.6. Look what it says. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. There it is and a deadly snare. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Don't bother to lie to get a fortune because fortunes that come by lying are insubstantial. They don't last. They're elusive. One more verse, Zechariah 10.2. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. There's the word, hebel, vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. Don't trust idols. Don't trust false teachers. They're useless. Uh, Trusting in them is like walking on a pond that has thin ice. It will give way. So when the teacher says that life is, that everything is a vapor, meaningless, he means it's, it's fleeting, it's short, it's elusive, it's deceptive, it's not trustworthy. So many things in life as we know it don't last, and because they don't last, they're not worth as much as you think. Now, does it bother you here that the teacher says everything is meaningless? Everything is meaningless. Now, we're going to talk about that. The line above is, is important for just a minute. It says utterly meaningless. Or your translation, if it's an older one, might say vanity of vanities. There's a Hebrew way of emphasizing things. Um, in, in, sometimes it's translated literally in the Bible this way. Um, if the Bible in the Old Testament says blank of blank, it's a form of emphasis. So holy of holies means that it's the holiest place. It's not just the holy place, it's the holiest place there could be. Song of songs. It's the best song ever. It's the songiest song of them all. King of kings. He's the kingliest king that there is. Of all the kings, he's the most kingliest Uh, vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors. It's the the most vaporous things of all the vapid things that have ever vapided. It's it's vaporous. Hmm. Utterly. Well, what is? Everything. Everything. Everything? Come on. Really? Everything? Everything? 
we could be a little obnoxious, couldn't we? Everything, really, teacher? Even what you're writing in your own book, that too, everything, ha, 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 right? No, 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 no. He, he, he's pointing out the meaninglessness, the elusiveness, the vapid nature of life in a particular realm, which he identifies as verse 3, under the sun. Under, under the sun. Or life as we know it without God. Here's the basic theme of Ecclesiastes. If you're trying to build your life in a world under the sun without God, you will gain nothing. Why? Because life under the sun uh, is a vapor. It's meaningless. Uh, The New Scientist magazine a couple of years ago devoted an issue to trying to answer some of life's basic philosophical um, questions. They tried to ask these philosophical questions and then give a scientific answer to these philosophical questions. Uh, this new scientist, it's, it's a pretty regarded, a highly regarded science magazine. Here's what the author said. The question that he was trying to answer from a scientific standpoint is, what is the meaning of life? It's an important question, philosophical question. I'm not sure science is meant to answer philosophical questions like that, but here's what the author said in answer to that question. The harsh answer is that it has none, the meaning of life. Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. When it ends, a few people will remember you for a while, but they will die too. Even if you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct. Earth and the sun will be destroyed. Eventually the universe itself will end. Against this appalling reality, how can a human life have any real meaning? Aha! That's what we say when you read in the pages of the New Scientist something that the Bible has known for 3,000 years. You say, aha! You want to ask this guy, if human life has no real meaning then why did you bother to write this? You, you apparently are playing pretend because you think there is... You live as if life has real meaning because you're doing things, but then you believe that life has no real meaning. you got a problem. Huh. Life under the sun. Life without God. Look with me more closely at verse 3. Okay, Verse 3 asks a question, and um, what's the answer to the question he asks in verse 3? Okay, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What's the answer to that question? Nothing. Nothing. That's the implied answer to the question. The word gain, the word that gain here is important in Ecclesiastes. It refers to your profit, to what's left over. At the end of the day, after you have worked hard, spent all of your energy and time working, and you've met all of your expenses and all of your needs, and when you count what you have left over, is there any real profit from that labor? This question here that he asks in verse 3 takes on a basic assumption that all of us have. We're programmed to believe that if you work hard, and some of you are fortunate to work hard at things you love, if you work hard, we believe it will produce a profit. You'll get something from it. And, and it's true, your labor should give you a, a paycheck, it should yield something, but is it really gain? 
at least gain in the sense that the teacher wants you to think about gain? Or is that paycheck as elusive, as uh, brief, as untrustworthy as everything else? And the teacher wants to come along and says, it's not gain, it's not real gain. Not in the sense that ultimately matters. Ecclesiastes, don't hear me wrong, is pro-work. The teacher expects you to work hard. He wants you to work hard. Life is filled with hard labor. It's how you meet your need for food and clothing and housing and maybe some other things like a vacation every now and then. But in a world that cuts God out, those things don't have the significance that we uh, are tempted to give them. So toil is necessary, but it's the wrong way to find gain, gain that truly matters. Herb Miller wrote a story in his book called Actions Speak Louder Than Words about two Kentucky uh, horse breeders. They lived in the same neighborhood. They both raised horses, and uh, they were in competition together, these, these Kentucky farmers. So uh, it was going to come up on this great race in their neighborhood. Everybody knew about it. It was a great steeplechase race. And one of the farmers decided that he desperately wanted to win, so he thought the best way to do it was to hire a professional jockey. So he hired this jockey, brought him in at great expense. Uh, he spent a little bit of time with the horse. And on the day of the steeplechase race, uh, both of these Kentucky farmers had their horses. There were others there. Uh, and one of them was being ridden by a professional jockey. And the gun went off and the horses took off. And, and just as they were coming into the end of the race, these two horses, owned by these competitive farmers, were neck and neck coming up to the last fence. Well, as they went to jump over the fence, the horses both fell. Both the riders fell off. Well, the professional jockey was the quickest one up, quickest one back on his horse, and he raced across the finish line and won the race. And he, he rode the horse into the, in the horse barn, and he saw the farmer there, uh, and the farmer was just angry, angry, angry. And, and the jockey said, what? what's wrong? I won the race. And the farmer said, yeah, you did, but you crossed the finish line with the wrong horse. <laughs> hmm... He got on the competitor's horse and finished the race. It was a meaningless victory. You ride in the wrong horse. Now in the verses that follow, the teacher's going to make two arguments for why this theme that life under the sun is a vapor. He's going to make arguments for it. But before we get there, I want you to know that the New Testament actually repeats this theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. So look with me at a couple of New Testament verses. Here we go. Ready? Romans 1.21. He's speaking about us human beings. For although human beings, they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile. There it is. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word hevel. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice the world under the sun, if you do not acknowledge God, if you do not give thanks to God, acknowledge He's creator, what happens to your thinking? It becomes futile, empty, vain. Uh, untrustworthy. James one twenty six. it's possible to have empty religion. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is, here it is, worthless. Worthless. Uh, if, if your faith doesn't change the words that come out of your mouth, it's empty, it's futile, it's meaningless. 1 Peter one eighteen. this is a good verse. For you know that it was not with perishable, there it is, perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
Silver and gold are important. They have their uses. When it comes to buying forgiveness, they're useless. Do you treat them with the appropriate uselessness that they have? Now, here's one more. Here's what the message of false teachers is like. 2 Peter 2.18 For they mouth empty boastful words, these false teachers, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Empty, empty words. These false teachers have empty words. So take this as a warning. The world is filled with empty, meaningless, deceitful, insubstantial things. Be careful of living for them. Do you know how to recognize them? Can you tell the differences between what matters and what doesn't? So Ecclesiastes is here to help us with that. Now let's look at two arguments that the teacher makes for this belief that he has that life is a vapor. He's got two arguments and they're quite easy to see. Here's the first one. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. Uh, Look at verse 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 8 again. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Now, just a word here about the artistry of this. The sun rises and sets. The sun goes east to west. And then in verse 6, it talks about the wind going north and south. Just a little literary variety there. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams, verse 7, flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Now, these are some jarring words, and I want to explain to you why I think they're jarring. They're jarring because, on the one hand, Think about how differently this passage speaks about the sun and creation than other passages in the Bible. So, for example, well, if you leave God out of the equation, what does the sun do? What is it like? That's what he's arguing here. In contrast to that, think about how Psalm 19 describes the sun. So, in Psalm 19, verse 4, here's the sun. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Psalm 19 says... The sun is a sign of the glory of God. It rises like a bridegroom getting ready for his wedding, like a horse. You you know how, have you ever seen the beginning of horse races, how they struggle to get those spirited animals in the gates? That's the horse coming out, or that's the sun coming up out of the sky, and and it shines in the whole world and gives the whole world warmth and, and, and reminds us of the glory of God. That's Psalm 19. In Ecclesiastes 1, the, the sun is a harried, a harassed commuter. He's running to the train. He's running to the office. He's running through his day. He's running home. And then he finally falls into bed. Quite a different view of the sun. Or uh, Jeremiah 31. The sun, the rising of the sun, is a sign that God is going to keep his promises. When you get up in the morning and you see the sun coming, Jeremiah 31 says, God keeps his promises. That's what the sun means. But here... Life without God, the sun is racing. It's racing through its day. 
Another reason that these verses are sometimes uh, sometimes jarring a little bit is because this is actually not the way we're used to thinking about the environment. This passage describes the earth as perpetually repeating the same process over and over again. But what we hear about now is not the perpetual working of the planet over and over again. What we hear now is about how uh, we, due due to climate change, how we are causing the world to collapse. Due to human waste and irresponsibility, it's going to stop working. The text says that the sea is never full, but we are told that the polar ice caps are melting and the sea is going to rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. This passage is not the way we're usually usually inclined to think about the planet or people talk about the planet. This week there was a, 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 a... primary debate among the Democratic candidates for president. They were talking about climate change. And uh, one of the candidates said that the United States needs to fund abortion in third world countries because there are too many children being born in third world countries. And uh, all of those children are going to destroy the planet. That's terrible. It's a God-forsaken thing to say. All those children because the people in those countries are too poor and too ignorant to know that they shouldn't have all these children. They're going to destroy the planet and ruin life as we know it for us who are smart enough and rich enough not to have too many children. He didn't say that last part. I added that last part. Hmm. Now, this passage is not about climate change. Okay? This passage is not about climate change This is not a good place to argue about climate change or against responsible stewardship. But this passage does remind us, again, not as a central point, it reminds us that according to the biblical worldview, life on earth as we know it is not going to end due to climate change. This is not how the world is going... That is not how the world is going to end. In fact, Jesus himself told us that people are going to be working and getting married and going through normal life all the way up until the end when he brings the world to an end. How is the world going to end with the return of Jesus? At the end of the 20th century, do you remember what we were afraid of at the end of the 20th century, how the world was going to end? It was going to end with a nuclear holocaust. Now the world is going to end through climate change. No, You don't have enough power to destroy this pattern that God himself has woven into creation. Nothing changes. Since the dawn of human existence, the sun has risen and the sun has set, the wind has blown, the rivers have flowed, on and on and on it goes. Another level at which this poem functions here as we read it is we're supposed to feel sympathy with the planet. The sun is hurrying, verse 5 it says it, it, it hurries. Uh, who wins the race every day? You or the sun? Does the sun get to bed before you do? Almost every day, right? Okay. Um, some of you, you wake up before the sun and, and you run through the day and the sun runs through the day and the sun gets to go to bed before you, which does not seem fair. Your great, great, great grandparents knew enough to go to bed when the sun went to bed. But you don't know that. It runs. The rivers flow, verse 7 says, but they never fill the sea. Now, some people see the water cycle in verse 7. Uh, it's, it's implied there. But instead, the, the, verse 7, is, it functions like this. Hey, Mississippi River, 
Yes. Mississippi River, you've been flowing for a long, long time. Yes. Millions and millions of gallons of water have flown between your banks, Mississippi River. You've carried them a long way, all the way into the Gulf of Mexico, haven't you? Yes. Mississippi River, when are you going to fill the Gulf of Mexico? You've been flowing and flowing and flowing. Do you think the Gulf of Mexico would be filled by now, Mississippi River? When are you going to fill it? And the river says, never. There is no gain from all my toil. I flow and flow and flow and nothing happens. I'm never done. It's like the Mississippi River does laundry at your house. Right? There's an old story about a mother who walked in and her six-year-old son and he was crying, sobbing. She said, what's the matter? And he said, I figured out how to tie my shoes. And she said, why are you crying? And that's great news. You're getting to be such a big boy. You learn how to tie your shoes. That's wonderful. Why are you crying? And he says, because now I'm going to have to do it every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> no change. You work and work and work The teacher is going to come back to this a little bit a little bit later uh, about the, the the working that we do and why we should work. He's, he's going to come back to that, but basically, right now, he wants you to know things don't change, nothing changes. Now, second, second, we know that that life is often a mystery or life is often a vapor. Sorry, life is often a vapor because nothing is new. Nothing is new. Verses 9 through 11. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. Again, you have to ask this question, is this true? Clearly, clearly the teacher has never seen an iPhone or flown on a plane. Hey, teacher, don't you know there's this thing that's going to be the enlightenment? It's going to come in a couple thousand years from your life? Or the industrial revolution? He's never been to a grocery store. Teacher, I'd like you to take you to the grocery store because I guarantee you can find at least two dozen products at the grocery store that are indeed new and improved. Right? But then the teacher would say, all of those things are just incidental to basic human realities that have not changed. Humans from the beginning of time have been communicating. Social media just helps us to do it faster and meaner. Humans for a long time have been traveling, not on planes, but they've been traveling. Humans have been thinking for a long time. Humans have been doing these things. There are certain fundamentals that don't change. Birth, death, marriage, work. The kinds of work we do changes. We, we get better at surviving birth. We, we can prolong death. Uh, we've done a number in our culture on marriage, but, but these fundamentals stay the same. There's nothing new. You may find this hard to believe. You may look at your grandfather with his wrinkly face and his gray or absent hair, and you may, you may find this hard to believe, but he has had the same temptations, the same troubles, the same joys, the same frustrations that you have. What you might find discouraging about this observation is that the teacher here is dealing a blow to one of our great human longings. The longing we have for something new. Do you know anybody with a sense of restlessness? 
Got to have something new constantly. Advertisers play off of it. They ju- people just want something different in life. Sometimes that longing is harmless. You can easily met it, meet it. Go buy a new shirt. I was talking to Marjorie York a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. Uh, this dear woman, member of our church, she's 98 years old. And um, we were talking about shopping. And uh, Marjorie's a good shopper. And I was talking, yeah, it's been a while since you've been shopping. Yes, it is. And she said, it's just nice sometimes to have something new to wear. Harmless. Paint your house a new color. Or uh, it's not wrong to be bored with your career and want to find a new job. That, that, that's fine. But, but there's this sense of restlessness that is actually harmful. This longing always for something new and better and different, it causes some people to introduce just a lot of insecurity in the lives of those that depend on them. I remember years ago watching reruns of The Little House on the Prairie. Did you watch that show? Um, Little House on the Prairie, based on those books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And in the, in the television show, Michael Landon was a rock. He was Pa Ingalls, Charles Ingalls. He was a rock. He held the, the community together. He held the family together. Everybody trusted him. Do you know in reality, Charles Ingalls was kind of a wingnut? The real Charles Ingalls was always looking for something new and always looking for something better. That's why there was a little house in the woods and a little house in the prairie and a little house by Plum Creek and a little house everywhere because Charles Ingalls was always looking for something better. In fact, one of the times that they moved, he skipped town in the middle of the night because he owed rent money that he didn't have, he didn't have any cash to pay, so they ran out on it. The Ingalls, Charles Ingalls, ran out on a debt. This, I, I want something new. I want something new. I've got to have something new can be dangerous, it can be hurtful. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes about this in Screwtape Letters, about this longing for newness. It's one of Satan's great temptations, he says. Remember, he's writing from the perspective of a tempting demon, and he says, The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable possessions we have produced in the human heart. An endless source, this desire for new things is an endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. And the author of Ecclesiastes is taking this on. There is nothing new under the sun. The teacher says, even if you think of something that you you can find that you think is new, it's not. And the proof is how easily it will be forgotten. No one remembers the former generations. Is that an exaggeration? Let's try an experiment here, okay? So the NFL season just started. Do you remember who won the Super Bowl last season? It was eight months ago. It was February. Um, a good number of you probably remember, okay? It was the Patriots. Ugh, the Patriots, okay? So the Patriots won. Uh, I, no amens, okay? Just none of that. Church discipline. Okay, so no amens. All right. Now, okay, we live in the right part of the world for this question, so who won the Super Bowl last year? Woohoo! We know. Yes. Right? Not the Patriots. Not the Patriots. How about 1991? You know who won the Super Bowl in 1991? Like millions of people watched this on television. Some of you watched this on television in 1991. Who won? A, a few of you might know in this room. Uh, maybe one or two of you. Uh, uh, there's no prizes if you do. It was the Giants. The Giants won the Super Bowl in 1991. Uh, I, it, they beat the Bills. 
It was one of the four-year period. It was in that four-year period of time when the Bills went to the Super Bowl every year and lost four years in a row. Yes, the Giants. What film won the Oscar for Best Picture last year? Some of you might know Green Book won. Uh, I didn't see Green Book. How, how about last year? Last year the winner was The Shape of Water. Uh, some of you laughing at the title. You didn't see the movie clearly, okay, because The Shape of Water is, I don't know, round. Okay, how about 1991? 1991. Who, so the Giants won the Super Bowl that year. Do you know who won, uh, what sh- film won the Oscar for Best Picture? It was Silence of the Lambs. I don't know why you don't know that. It was huge news. Uh, Hannibal Lecter is one of the creepiest characters ever made on film. How about 1976? Do you know who won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1976? Rocky. Those were still the years when critics and fans liked the same movies. 1976. A couple weeks ago, uh, there was a freshman, we'll change topics a little bit. A high school freshman class at Penn Manor uh, was taking a little experimental test they had to name three presidents who served between Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Claire helped grade them. How do, you, how, how do you suppose these freshmen did? Deplorably. These are men, they, they had their names in the newspaper every day. There are probably posters of them in their classroom. This is the bearded brigade. You know, all those guys with the beards, Hayes, Arthur, Garfield, Grant... I know a few of them because I'm strange. Normal people don't know this and they don't need to know this. Okay, here's a test that's going to distract you for the rest of the sermon. You ready? Uh, Can you name all eight of your great-grandparents? You have eight great-grandparents. Can you name all eight of them? About 5% of Americans can name all eight of them. These are your relatives, Okay, they lived and died, probably within the room, within, if they're still, if they're gone, on the outside in the room, within the last 150 years, these people. At the back, when I'm shaking hands at the end of the service, this is going to happen, I know it will happen. If the line is really long, there'll be one of your blessed church members telling me the name of their eight great-grandparents, because they're really proud that they know the the name of their eight great-grandparents. So the line will take longer today because some blessed brother or sister is telling me this. All right? And and I will congratulate you, and then I will say, okay, but how about your 16 great-great-grandparents? I bet you get out of line and go think about it, and then come back and tell me. Because you won't be able to do it. Generations come and generations go. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow him. They're forgotten. All of the great men and women of our day and of our nation will soon be forgotten. There's nothing new. So what does this mean, my friend? You, are, you may be living for something that doesn't really matter. In the coming weeks, we're going to get a list from the teacher of some of those meaningless goals that people set before themselves. There is satisfaction in this life to be had. There is. That's what the teacher wants for you. But you might be looking for it in all of the wrong places. Someday you'll wake up and realize it. Someday you'll wake up and realize that you missed out on all kinds of little blessings that God had for you because you were chasing the wrong question. 
He asks the questions about work in verse 3. What do we gain from our toil? Ecclesiastes says again, work and work hard. Even when your tasks are repetitive and monotonous, work. But you should know why you're working hard. What you expect to get out of working hard. If you're expecting ultimate satisfaction or fame or a legacy that will outlive you or comfort because you can make a lot of money, you're going to be disappointed. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Anne Lamott wrote about a friend of hers. Uh, He said to her, Uh, He feels like the professor on Gilligan's Island. While he found time to fashion generators out of palm fronds, vaccines out of algae, he never got around to fixing that huge hole in the boat so he could go home. How many people actually do? Fix the boat. Ecclesiastes comes along and says, fix the boat, fix the boat. When you think about what constitutes the good life, what comes to your mind? You get that idea from television commercials? When you think about what what does it mean for me to be a successful person, to live a successful life, where do you get that idea? There's some help in this text. Uh, Embedded here is a clue. The teacher talks about being remembered. Remembered. He's going to use that same word later in in Ecclesiastes 12.1. I may be turning to that passage a lot. Right at the end of the book he says... Remember your creator in the days of your youth. You will not be remembered. You will not be remembered for very long. Your great-grandchildren that you think are so awesome right now will not be able to name you in 40 years. Don't focus on being remembered by them. Focus on what should be remembered, namely your creator, the one who's above the sun. Dare I say it in contradiction to the teacher, here's what you should remember most. There is something that was new in human history. It happened a thousand years ago or so after the teacher lived and died. Something new. The God who is above the sun entered the world and rescued us. That was a new day. Through his son, God broke in from above, from above the sun, to rescue us from our sin, and he gives new life and new hope and a new future who, to all who will turn and trust in him through the new covenant. Oh, there is something new. We have a lot more work to do in this book. The teacher has a lot more balloons to pop in your mind. That sound may startle you. My hope is that if it startles you, you'll look up above the sun to the God who calls us to himself. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we thank you for this truth that you have laid upon us. Lord, it, it um, strikes against the pretensions that we have of living in this world. Of the, of the monuments that we will build to ourselves and the lives that matter that we're trying to put together. Lord, I'm thankful that you told us about the meaninglessness of so much so that we can find true meaning and true purpose in following you. Lord, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see even this week when we see... Uh, television commercials or see magazine ads or newspaper ads or uh, uh, things 
trying to be sold to us on Facebook or Instagram. Give us eyes to see and recognize the lie that's being sold about what constitutes success or, or happiness or a good life. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to learn to toil hard under the sun and to look above the sun for our satisfaction. Help us in that endeavor as we read this wonderful book that you have given to us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.